Welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Kate Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. There are 16 million people in our country who have intellectual or developmental disabilities, what's known as IDD. These are problems such as autism, brain injuries, fetal alcohol syndrome, and cerebral palsy, for example. To put it simply, our system is failing them. We are not assuring them top-flight healthcare, proper health for their complicated social needs, and the best rehabilitation possible. Too many of them cannot meet their goals in life or look forward to the best health that they can have. Our guest today is on a mission to correct that. Dr. Mai Pham is the founder and president of the Institute for Exceptional Care, IEC. It's a nonprofit dedicated to transforming healthcare for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Mai started IEC just barely three years ago, and IEC has already partnered with over 140 clinicians, five health insurance plans, and 28 disability organizations. My farm's goal is clear, high-value care for everybody. Mai is a doctor and a national health policy leader who has worked both in government and within the private sector. She is well-known nationally for her innovative thinking and policy expertise. She's exactly what a change agent looks like. And now she is bringing all of her talent and experience into laser focus on the neglected needs of millions of people with IDD. We are excited to hear from Mai about IEC and the future of health system transformation. Mai Pham, welcome to Turn On The Lights. Mai, thank you for joining us. We're so glad to have you here on Turn On The Lights. And so to start off with, we wanted to just get a, a better sense of the Institute for Exceptional Care. You've started something new. It's not that long that it's been around, and we'd love to just learn and introduce the Institute to our listeners. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Institute and about you? So thanks so much for having me here. It's great to be talking with friends about things I care about. So Institute for Exceptional Care is a pretty young nonprofit. We're about three years in. And actually, the first person that I voiced this kernel of an idea to was Don Berwick. And the reason that I went to Don was because um, our second child, Alexander, who's now 20 years old, is autistic and uh, had been a pretty happy, thriving kid. But we survived his first crisis in high school. And coming out of that was an opportunity for me to take a step back and ask a lot of questions. I wanted to know, how did we fail him? How did the system fail us? And, and I had kind of a woke moment. I realized, wow, this is how families who live with disabilities need to make their way through the world with very little effective help from professionals and and wow, I was really oblivious to this, despite being a physician and um, a national health policy leader and someone who was supposed to know everything about the system and how to fix it. And then I realized my, the third prong of my woke moment was, I think that made me pretty typical of healthcare leaders to be so oblivious to how families like ours live. And so that was just a lot of fuel to go try to figure out where the gaps were in what we needed and, and how to fix it. We started this nonprofit as a rather unusual advocacy group because many of us founders came from inside healthcare. We're kind of quintessential insiders, but we also have this lived experience of trying to support people that we love 
And, and hence, we had a lot of motivation for earning the trust of the disability community. And so what we do is we, we try to solve the healthcare problems, but we do it in this very deliberate way where we bring in actual community members, people with disabilities and family members, and then we put them in the same virtual rooms, usually, with really important healthcare decision makers, and we help them work together problems. Mike, can you go back a little bit in the story? What was so hard? What felt challenging and difficult to you as a self-described policy leader or something that you were in this field, you were working at the highest levels of, of government and academia and, and practice. What felt hard to you? What felt surprising to you and so challenging to you in the, in the early days? It was one of these lobster in the pot experiences where we knew we had a quirky kid, but there were several rounds of testing when he was younger and they told us they didn't have a diagnosis and that didn't come until a relatively late age of eight or nine. And even then, our pediatrician just didn't seem super engaged in it, didn't seem to think that was his problem to worry about. And so we took cues from that. I had never been trained in thinking about autism or neurodevelopmental disabilities. That was not a part of my clinical training. And so I didn't know what I didn't know. And because he seemed happy and thriving, we just kind of chugged along. We didn't, there weren't any interventions or special supports. No one steered us to any peer counseling or otherwise. And no one explained to us really what to expect developmentally. And as it turns out, it's a known thing that as autistic children with certain both talents and challenges get to that age where school demands pose like really significant cognitive and emotional stressors for them, things start to fall apart. This is a known pattern, but it wasn't known to us and no one it to us. And you are, as you say, a quintessential insider. If anyone would know this in the healthcare system, given your very distinguished career, my, you, you would have. So for the, for IEC, the Institute for Exceptional Care, what is the population you're trying to help here? What, I mean, Alexander is one example. Can you help kind of unpack the, who, yeah. who when IEC is now trying to get better care for a population? Yeah. So to be honest, we actually did start focusing on autism. And then our disability friends explained to us, actually, it's, you probably want to tackle the entire population of people with what we would call intellectual and or developmental disabilities. So that's inclusive of things like Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, fetal alcohol syndrome, autism, intellectual disability, for example. And there are a number of other genetic conditions. Basically, how we describe IDD, as we call it, is something that you're either born with or that you develop in childhood that affects the way that you learn, the way that you interact with others, and the way that you uh, develop physically and or um, intellectually. And so that's a very broad set of conditions. And people within that broad category have very different capabilities and needs. The reason that we decided to take that broad scope, Don, is because our disability friends convinced us, one, that many of the solutions we're after are generalizable. They would help that entire population. They're not 
specific things like, gosh, you shouldn't need a PhD in social work to be able to find the services that you need. I mean, how um, many people are we talking about here with that fit this IDD in intellectual development? So, so that's controversial. Journey. For many years, the advocacy community would cite this, and they still do, they still cite this number of 7.2 million. IEC, Institute for Exceptional Care, believes it's closer to 16 million. And we believe that recent data from the Centers for Disease Control and from national surveys indicate that our number is on the low side. So we're talking about three to five percent of the total population. And you think it's a higher number because oh, we're getting better at recognizing the signs of ID or is it it's just always been true? We just haven't seen it. We haven't. Our diagnostic understanding has been limited. What's causing us, what's causing you to believe that there's more you know, individuals affected yeah. by ID than others? But yeah, go ahead. It's both. We're definitely better at detecting it now, but it is also true, especially for um, conditions related to autism spectrum that there does seem to be a growth in the rate of that occurring in the population. I'm a pediatrician, but you're saying that overall the medical workforce doesn't seem equipped right now to address the needs of this population. Is that overstating? And if that is the case, why? How did we get in that pickle? One statistic that Special Olympics gathered would suggest that medical students get an average of 11 minutes of exposure during their training to these conditions. I'm pretty sure I got zero. 11 um, minutes? 11, 11 minutes in four years of medical school? Yes, yes, yeah. 11 minutes in four years. And unless you're a pediatrician, when you go to do your residency training, you're likely to not get formal training at all. Now, there are training pilots going on all the time, and some schools are more progressive than others. But that's also pretty much the case in nursing, right? Or for physician assistants. In dentistry, it's a little bit better, but not a lot. You have this landscape where there's a complete mismatch between the people who need support and the clinicians who are wholly unprepared to offer that support. Are there examples, Maya, of places or programs that you've seen where they're doing a better job of preparing clinicians and parents, frankly, for children that might face a, a developmental or intellectual disability? There are some bright spots in terms of, and I'm more familiar, to be honest, with the medical training part of health professions, University of Massachusetts, or to University of Colorado, to Duke, to Montefiore, to UCLA. These and what are, are they doing? What are those programs doing differently than the average medical school or training program? A few things, and they take different strategies. Some of them are explicitly creating curricula around these disabilities that are kind of standalone. Some of them, and it's not either or, some of them are infusing case scenarios of people with these conditions into other clinical topics. Um, because one thing IEC says is, it's not that we want 16 million specialists in this area. We would love to have more specialists, but the reality is there will never be enough specialists for 10 to 16 million people. We need every clinician to be prepared because it's a lot like saying, let's put it this way, you would never be allowed to graduate from nursing or medical school without knowing and understanding diabetes. That's regardless of whether you're gonna work in the hospital or in hospice or with an, an anesthesiologist or in an OB practice, in a gynecology office. That's because diabetes creates a context that affects that entire range of clinical decision-making. These disabilities are the same. They create a context that demands that all those clinicians have some level of understanding 
of how this intersects with their work. And so some of these schools focus on a combination of changing culture among clinical students and or clinicians in practice. For example, in Massachusetts, there's this wonderful program called Project House Call, where medical undergraduate medical and nursing students are paired up with a family with someone with IDD. And they spend time over their four years walking in the shoes of those families. And they come out with a very different appreciation of the humanity of people with disabilities, of the struggles that those families face, and how much empathy it takes to understand what a challenge it is to navigate the healthcare system when you have already these other challenges at home. So you're describing for Alexander, your son, the diagnosis or understanding him came too late. The interventions were not offered at a, in a timely way. When things go right, like when there is awareness, and how much difference does it make? No, gosh, I think it can actually save lives and not just the life of the person with disability, but their entire family. It is the difference between having a child grow up knowing their strengths versus a child who feels that there's something wrong and they can't figure out what it is. As a pediatrician, Don, what impact that can have on a young person's self-esteem and mental health. It is not coincidental that the suicide rate for young autistic adults is six to tenfold what it is for the general population. As a mama, that is what keeps me up at night. It makes a huge difference in terms of things that we take for granted, like women with disabilities, especially intellectual developmental disabilities, routinely do not get offered sexual reproductive health. They want it. They need it. It is a very human thing to want and need. No one offers them that education. No one asks them about their sense of sexual safety. No one helps them prepare. And then, again, not surprisingly, women who with intellectual and developmental disabilities who do get pregnant have 50% higher maternal mortality than other women. So it really is life and death. You said earlier on that in the formation of IEC, the Institute for Exceptional Care, and its ongoing work, you have people with, quote, lived experience. This is both family members and people with intellectual and development, developmental disabilities working with you. How do you involve them? And what's that like to have those voices right at the table? First, I should say it's a privilege and it's something that we had to figure it out. But we figured it out by actually asking them to cope. So let me paint you a picture of what it's like. We have a project. We want to center it on community perspectives. We send out, we create a recruitment flyer in very plain, simple language that explains what the project is, who is sponsoring it, what kinds of participants we're looking for, how they will be paid, because it's important to pay for their time, and the kinds of supports that we can offer, such as one-on-one prep calls before meetings to help them prepare, pre-meeting videos so that they have time to process the discussion that will happen and the topics, graphic illustration, because some people think better, remember better, learn better when they can see visuals, support for people who use assistive communication devices, because not everyone that we work with speaks, paying if they have a support person 
right, who helps them with various things, whether that's checking email or scheduling or helping them understand what's happening in a room. We pay for that person as well. And then importantly, as importantly, if not even more importantly, when we bring them into that virtual room with healthcare leaders, we set the table. We are very explicit in explaining to everyone what the cultural norms are that we want people to observe, that we're going to flatten the hierarchy. We ask people to not refer to their degrees, to not talk about their professional backgrounds, just explain, why are you in this meeting? What's important to you about it? We try to humanize everyone, but oh, usually by having some kind of opening icebreaker, something silly. We found uh, something online, a sheep scale, sheeps with different personalities. What kind of sheep are you feeling like today? That makes everyone feel silly and human. And then we role model for our healthcare colleagues how to slow down, how to de-jargonize what you're talking about, how to stop and listen, and how to act on what you are hearing from the community. Because you can earn trust, but if you don't act on the input, that trust dissipates very rapidly. So this is a cycle. We do this over and over again. And what we find, Don, is that, first of all, obviously, our goal, number one, is to empower community members. And they definitely get that. They also scold us a lot when we get things wrong. And we used to feel badly about that, but now we kind of do a happy dance because we realize every time they scold us, they're making us better. But the real what's something you got? What's something you got wrong? Oh, our plain language is almost never plain language enough. We almost always have to simplify it more. And then once we were trying to explain graphically what a good health outcome is and just the concept of a health outcome. And we thought of this notion of a fork in the road we go where if you make some, you or the clinicians make bad decisions, you end up with a bad health outcome, good decisions. And somebody said, that's awfully ableist. <laughs> Am I going to be able to take my wheelchair down that path? Said, yeah, let's find a different metaphor. So that's an example. My, who are you having these conversations with? So you're preparing, you're bringing folks with real lived experience, family members, individuals mm-hmm. um, who are experiencing intellectual development disabilities. You're bringing those individuals into conversation, you said, with healthcare leaders. I guess my question is, what healthcare leaders are inviting this conversation? And what is the expected goal? Why are they having this conversation? What are they hoping to do differently as a result of having this conversation? So I'll get to that second part in a minute. Some examples of healthcare leaders we've engaged. Emergency room physicians, hospital executives, health insurance executives. We have had leaders from Medicaid in the room. We have had healthcare regulators in the room, that whole range, okay? What we try to accomplish really varies by the project, but the three areas that we focus on are one, getting as many clinicians trained as possible. How do you scale culture change and how do you scale getting clinicians prepared? A second area of work is promoting the care models that we think really do address the gaps that families are experiencing now, but also filling in those gaps ourselves when the solution doesn't yet exist. And I can give an example of that in a bit. Uh, And then the third area is making sure that the good things that families want, the services that they want, the kinds of supports they want, get paid for. 
Like what, what are what are those? What is what yeah. are the services that families seem to want the most right now? So so that's a very long conversation. But <laughs> some examples include, for example, more frequent dental visits. They would love to have access to alternative forms of support for their mental health. Because think about it, talk therapy can be really hard for an autistic person. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they would love access easier access to things like peer support groups and art therapy or music therapy. They would like medication to be the last resort. Sometimes what they want are, is to not get health care. They would like to avoid the emergency rooms, please. They would like things that they can, supports they can use, like having someone they can call in an urgent situation who can help them de-escalate what feels might need an urgent care center or an emergency room, but doesn't really. There are so many things that yeah. you want and need. What What are the features of a model? You mentioned that they, sometimes there's advocacy for care models that filling the gaps you referenced earlier. So I'm just curious, we've had on this program other people who have talked about navigation problems and gaps in care. So I'm, I'm curious about the kinds of gaps that you're yeah. seeing and that maybe you've experienced yourself as a mom and as a family member so for in Alexander's care. What are the kinds of gaps that are left open and, that, and what care models are showing some success at solving for some of those problems? Here's an actual story. Um, one of our disability partners has a son who is non-speaking and has is autistic and has intellectual disability. And she noticed that he was moving his body, twisting his torso in a different way than he usually does. And he was verbalizing noises that he didn't usually do. And some of his doctors poo-pooed it. Others of his doctors said, this is, they didn't poo-poo it, but they said, this is just a normal evolution. He's changing from a teenager to a young adult. It took weeks until one doctor finally figured out that what was going on was a rip-roaring ulcer in his esophagus and that his twisting and new noises was a way of expressing extreme pain. His esophagus was so raw that they had to do an endoscopy and inject medication. So imagine that scenario. And part of the issue there was that the parent was not believed, the person could not speak or advocate for themselves, and the clinicians didn't really understand their baseline as the mama did. What we do what in one of our projects with a coalition on Long Island in New York, uh, that coalition includes people with IDD, family members, disability organizations, uh, community clinics, and the two largest academic medical centers. And to a person, they all said their worst pain point for people like this in the healthcare system is the emergency department. And one of the solutions that they wanted to build and that we've now, you know, started working with an app developer on is a digital tool. It's a snapshot. We, it's going to be called Always Uniquely Me. It'll sit on any device and it's connected to a cloud-based database of patients like this. And what it does is it shows you, it shows that first responder, whether they're in a clinic or an emergency room or in a group home, yes, clinical information. But it's not an electronic medical record. It shows you just the most important things about that person, including, here's what I look like when I'm at my best. Click this video. See, I'm happy and athletic. Here are things that trigger my anxiety. 
here are things that calm me down. I like music. Click here for my tunes. Or if you want to take a blood draw, please use my left arm because if you use my right arm, I might punch you. Very practical tips. And we, the, the reason that we got here was because of that collaboration between the community members saying, here's what we would want you to know about us that we think would make the emergency room experience safer for us. And the clinician saying, here's what we would want to know about you to help you better and prevent us from making mistakes. And that is how this wonderful product came to be designed. That is filling a gap. And not coincidentally, Don and Kadar, I know you both will appreciate this. Once we conceived of this and we started designing, okay, what will the data fields look like and how will the app look? And we realized, yeah, this thing would be really great for a lot of other people too. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Uh, it shaped like, my mind, but yeah. my goodness. I mean, like three-year-old Vietnamese-speaking, hard-of-hearing mother. Exactly, yep. yeah, my goodness. My, you keep talking about the community, the affected community. I'm, you're reminding me of a patient I took care of for many years, a, a kid named Max who uh, who had an autism, pretty severe autism, which we diagnosed when he was quite young, two or three. But what struck me most, it was about him, this lovely kid, just so engaging, was his mother's and father's commitment to him. This was like a full-time job for them. For decades, they stood guard, they advocated. This is quite a job for families, I gather. What's IEC's view of that? And is that a, how, how should we think about that? So it is, you are spot on. Families come under tremendous stress. But our view of that is that this is not about a child being a burden. This is about the families not getting the supports that they need. So there should be, we believe, wider access to respite services. There should be some kind of way to compensate families for all the unpaid time and labor that they put into supporting their loved one. There should be professionals who take as much of that burden of coordinating services off of them as possible. We think that's entirely doable. It's just that we live in this very strange system where healthcare is over here on one side and social services are over there on the other side, and they very rarely talk. It is as if you think that a person can split themselves in two or three. Don't forget yeah. there's also education and housing. All of these things need to work together. And because there aren't any professionals position right now to take responsibility for all of it, it falls on the families. So in your life before IEC, as Kedar said, you were and remain a very influential member of the American health policy community, highly respected. You've worked in Washington at high levels. But let me ask you to draw a bridge between the mission of IEC and what we need to do for the 16 million or more people and the policy world that you come from. If you now would put you in charge of the whole thing, what are the three or four important changes in policy, finance, environment that you think would make the biggest difference for, for these families? I'm going to try to convince you and your audience that this is not pie-in-the-sky thinking. Okay, so I will start big and then I'll go small. I think that the entire country is in a health crisis akin in magnitude to the climate crisis. We are the only rich country in the world where life expectancy has plateaued and where Americans in the prime years of their life are actually experiencing decreasing life expectancy. That's unheard of. Worse than plateau, yes, receding. Yes, uh, yes. And just as with the climate crisis, one would, it would never occur to you to go first to the fossil fuel industry to solve it. 
And so we feel neither should you go straight to healthcare and expect healthcare to lead, but healthcare should follow once government regulations and grassroots um, advocacy make it clear what the goal is. And the goal should be to improve health and being for people and for communities. And from that perspective, we would say, can we reorient as many sectors in the economy as possible to maximize health as economic currency? That means real estate developers. You want to build a building? Let's get you to go through a health impact assessment, just as we would request an environmental impact assessment. Okay, you're an insurance company, you want to uh, offer a health plan, and you have um, what's called a medical loss ratio to meet, right, where you have to spend a certain amount of the every dollar that you collect in premiums on medical services. Let's change that. that let's make that a health loss ratio. So now you're expected to spend a good portion of those dollars, not just on medical services, but on things that promote health before someone needs medical services. Let's create the healthcare equivalent of cap and trade so that people on Wall Street and pension funds have an incentive to now go looking for opportunities to invest in health. Can you just play that a little bit? Cap and trade comes from the energy world in which carbon emissions are controlled and you can trade carbon emissions. But you want to explain how that would, what do you have in mind? Right. Here? So let's say, for example, that the federal government will offer all businesses in any given county tax rebates, depending on whether they can reduce maternal mortality. Now, suddenly, the local government there has an incentive and the businesses in that county have an incentive to find ways to reduce maternal mortality. And then investors on Wall Street or in private equity have a reason to help them. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I run a hardware store or I own a business, a manufacturing business. You're saying I get rewarded for reducing uh, in, uh, maternal mortality? That's one way of doing it. You could also direct those tax, that tax policy toward individual organizations, or you could do it for a whole community. Th those are some, and it's not high in the sky because some of this is already being done in various places around the country. You know, so that's at a macro level, the type of big change that we would love to see on a smaller level. Gosh, we would take, we would take just more investment in primary care. <laughs> that is just kind of table stakes for the health of a population. And done. that's a battle we've been collectively fighting for 20, 30 years now that I think is entirely doable. We're spending about three three cents on the healthcare dollar on primary care. And most rich countries spend between 20 and 30 cents on the dollar. Even if we doubled what we spent, it would still be a tiny amount of what is currently uh, being wasted right now in healthcare and not producing health. My, what do you think it'll take to actually move that needle on primary care? We've had, this has been a subject on this program. We've had a lot of folks suggest the same around primary care. And I I'm curious what you think would actually move the needle on primary care investment. You know, knowing what you know, and specifically moving it towards better care for families like yours, how would that work? And yeah. what would it take to do it? I think it is at this point all political. These are not hard technical problems to solve. And I won't, for, for fear of jinxing things, I won't share too much, but there's constant political activity to try to move the needle. And I do think we have some windows of opportunity now because of how devastated primary care was during COVID, 
how much the population is suffering with mental health burdens and, and other problems. And then I would be remiss in not saying that this population that IEC serves, we really think of as the tip of the spear. We really believe that if you could scale our approach of putting community perspectives and needs at the center of defining problems and solving problems, first of all, we've learned in our work, inevitably, in every instance, you end up with a better solution when you do that. And the better solution is better, not just for the people, but also for the clinician. They are not happy and fulfilled in the current system. They too want to be liberated. They too want to have time to understand their patient's life goals, right? They too want to have time to form partnerships with social service agencies and providers. They too want to, to have the communication skills and access to things like accessible exam tables and interpreters. They are feeling very constrained and deprived of their joy of work. So we really believe that the more, even though it sounds very crunchy granola and hippy-dippy what we're doing, what I go back to is we are a small nonprofit of seven people. If we can do it, then multi-billion dollar hospital systems and health insurance companies and governments can do it. There's truly no excuse. I don't think it sounds hippy-dippy at all. I mean, Apple Computer has popularized the idea of involving people, users, in the design of its products and is the most valuable company on the planet. The same principle is at play in what you're describing, which is involve the people who are in the where the end users, the families, people affected by the condition and the design of the solution. And inevitably, it's going to be a better solution. I think you're onto something. Maya, I wonder how has, how has the founding of IEC affected your family and your relationship with Alexander? I mean, how has it changed you? In some ways, they're on parallel tracks. Alexander was very supportive of my starting IEC. And I give him, I always check in with him about whether he wants to be involved, how much he wants to be involved. And I try to not push him. He is actually participating in one of our projects now. But he's also a young adult. And there's a lot happening inside young adults. And so we try to give him a lot of space to do his discovery and find himself. What it has done, I think, is given us both community in different ways. He has his community that's not driven by IEC. But IEC's community has taught me so much and made me so much more open to having Alexander show me how to be a better mother. And, and it's the kind of life where not a week goes by where someone on our team or on our board or in our community isn't having some kind of family crisis. That's kind of the norm. To know that there is community there to catch you, to support you, um, to just empathize has just made everything so feel so much safer. And Alexander isn't always aware, but there are about 600 people cheering whenever something goes great for him. Wonderful. In IHI, we have a saying, never worry alone. This, this chance to build a community of people that really know they can reach each other at a minimum is, is so inspiring. My Suppose some of our listeners are interested in following up with you or with IEC. I suppose some could be people who are living with as family members or people with lived experience with intellectual and developmental or developmental disabilities. 
Uh, others, maybe just people in the community say, this is population I'd like to get some action going. How can they reach you and where should they go for next steps? Sure. Please go to our website. It's www.ie-care.org, where you can Google Institute for Exceptional Care. Sign up for our newsletter. Uh, send us a message. Let us know if you're interested in volunteering or participating in projects, and and we will find a way. And if you are, especially if you are someone who is a health professional and you want to get involved, or if you're a community member, actually, this initiative partners both of those groups. We have a new initiative called the IDD Advocate Corps. And the notion here is that we're bringing together health professionals who have really influential day jobs, but who also have a personal connection to IDD and community members. And what we're basically building is an army of insurgents for change from within healthcare. And they're going to partner together to take it to the system one organization at a time. Knowing you, uh, Maya, this is, that's going to work. And uh, one more time, if people, what, what's the web uh, connection if people want to connect to you that way? ie-care.org. ie-care.org. You didn't say it, but I will. I know that IEC is a, is a hard scrabble, a new start, a nonprofit. If you are in a position to help IEC with, with contributions or donations, I believe my would accept those and you don't have to answer that my. But a lot of people have shown up, especially it's interesting how, how to me, how many people from very privileged backgrounds and families have personal experience with with IDD, so a child or someone in their family. So it's become quite personal watching the, I guess, this army grow and people yes. willing to pitch in with both resources and volunteerism. I appreciate, I really do appreciate that. And, and we are hard scrabble. I think it's an important point, Don, that this is an equal opportunity set of conditions. It's not driven by your zip code, by your race, your ethnicity, your religion. Now, that doesn't mean that black and brown people or people living in poor communities don't have even greater challenges. They absolutely do. But I have found that in most rooms, when I am giving a speech or something, and I ask the audience to think for just 30 seconds about whether anyone in their social network, among their colleagues, um, anyone at all in their orbit has IDD, Usually it's only one, sorry, doesn't have IDD. Raise your hand if you don't know anyone who has one of these conditions. Usually it's just one or two people, maybe 5% of the room that raise their hands. So it really does touch nearly all of us. And that's another reason that I think it's such an important gift yeah. um, to use as the tip of the spear. And so it's a wedge issue for sure, Mike. Well, congratulations to you, Maya, and your colleagues with IEC. I remember that, uh, I think, breakfast you and I had as, you, as I saw this gleam in your eye. But I knew it would become real and, and important and, and full of promise as it has, uh, My, We close each of our interviews in this podcast traditionally with um, a question about optimism and pessimism. The question for you, Maya, is given all your concerns, and you can go to the policy level in American healthcare if you want, or just talked about the condition of uh, people with IDD, are you, where would you rank and yourself or score yourself on an optimism to pessimism scale about, are we on the track and going to get this one fixed or are you, are you, are you worried? Uh, so I'm a first generation immigrant, which makes me a de facto optimist. But I would say 
I try to I try to underestimate what's possible in the long term, knowing that I'll probably overestimate what's possible in the short term. And that's okay with me, as long as we're moving in the right direction. Well, you are moving things in the right direction. Why? So my font, thank you so much for joining us on Turn on the Lights. I hope people do inquire further about IEC and the remarkable work you're, you've been doing. It's been a pleasure to have you on Turn on the Lights, and I hope we'll stay in close touch, My. Thanks to you both. You could tell there's so much passion and energy and depth to my story. And you can also hear her history as a policy analyst and a healthcare leader in her prescription for the future of American healthcare. Pretty resounding and some very clear and fiery thoughts there. What do you think, Don? Yeah, I've always thought of my nothing's going to stop her. Of course, I knew her first, not in the realm of people with disabilities, but as a policy force in Washington. And uh, she's uh, unstoppable. She's very smart, very committed and gets an idea and really sticks with it. This turn she took in her career to take all of that energy and apply it to this, I'll call it marginalized population is really, it's quite inspiring. It is interesting to me how much one person can do. IEC would not exist without my, it's now a community of hundreds and hundreds of people, but watching a person develop really an organization from scratch and uh, focus on needs with the intensity she is. It's pretty interesting. It's it's one way to get social change, I guess. Although uh, uh, I don't know how many heroes we can expect to to take that particular banner. Yes. And you wish that it didn't, we didn't rely on that type of system of production, right? To depend on the heroic effort of my, to her credit, she's built this amazing organization. And I very much hope it will be as successful as I expect it will be. And the system ought to be built differently so that in some ways that wasn't needed. We should be by default consulting the individuals that experience conditions. And again, if we were incentive, as I made this point during the conversation that Apple computers built a whole business out of that, right? They built the most valuable company on the planet basically by doing exactly that, listening to what people actually want. There's, there's no instruction manual to your iPhone. You just pick it up and start using it. And it's so intuitive because it's been designed with people in mind. Why isn't our health system anywhere close to that? It's nowhere close to that. Nothing about what we do. In fact, we almost seem structurally built to do the opposite of that in healthcare, which is befuddling since it's so intimate and so important to us, far more than a phone. Yeah. Healthcare should be designed by the people that use healthcare and depend on it. Uh, and somehow we ended up in a professionally dominated environment, which we, with many degrees after our names, are designing things to help people who know more than we do, but what they actually need. The other theme that Mai brought out that is, to me, we're hearing it in interview after interview. I must say, if I had to pick a theme that we're hearing, it's this, this idea of healthcare's interrelationship with community-based resources, social services, the social network. And we have built healthcare as a castle, a silo as if we could make people healthy by just doing more of our stuff. Whereas the bigger need, we, we do have to do that. If you need cardiac surgery, please, let's do it right. But this overall idea of building health generation, health creation is under-resourced, under-appreciated, under-trained for, and we haven't got the structures, it seems, to do what's needed. It takes a person like my farm to say, hey, everybody, we need you at this table. Let's all get together and figure out what Alexander really needs. I don't even know that it's just under-resourced or underpaid attention to. I think it's actually intentionally maligned. This may be going a bit further than you're going with this, Don. I don't know. But I actually think there's a sense that the idea that community-based care and involvement or engagement of community-based supports 
when you, when we talk about that, sometimes I think that the health audience sees it as naivete. They don't see it as being like the core business of making people healthier happens in hospitals. And as our good friend Nigel Crisp has said, you know, hospitals are for repairs. Health is made in the home. And I think that concept or that notion is conceptually disparaged uh, within healthcare. It's not only that it's not paid attention to, it's actually intentionally left out. So I might even go further on this and say that that may be part of the problem is that we actually don't really seem to respect the notion that health is actually made, despite the rhetoric, that health is truly not made in hospitals, it's made in the home or in the community. Well, I'm right with you there, Kate. And if you follow the money, look where we are investing in society and it's not in health. It's not in yeah. health yet. Could be, and it'd be curious, perhaps as part of the podcast work we're doing, we could find some communities and they may end up being indigenous communities or communities with strong anthropologic backgrounds, maybe in other countries and other societies where creating health is taken more seriously than mm -hmm. we take it, despite that. I loved your ideas about it, thinking of the healthcare crisis and the climate crisis and trying to apply a similar conceptual frame or similar set of ideas to healthcare to maximize the health potential. Again, I think this is an area in which we don't, in fact, I think we generally think the opposite. And this is not my job to improve maternal and child survival in my town or area. Your idea of the corner store, seeing that as part of their social responsibility, uh, we're far from that today. But my concept is to say, actually, no, we're all in this together. Every part of our community either creates or doesn't create health, just as every part of our community either creates or doesn't create climate impact. So th that's an interesting conceptual frame that I think could be very convincing and could be, could be very interesting to explore further. How do we nurture action together when action separately can't possibly solve the problem? Yeah, and we're certainly there on healthcare. Well, Don, thank you again so much. And it was great to talk to Matt today. Thank you. See you again. The Turn On The Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn On The Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.